approaching things with a sense of humor is of the utmost importance. Like today, the inside of our heat exchanger froze water and blew up the inside of it. And it was just a complete freak accident. But honestly, there's more days where things go wrong than days when things go perfectly. The most important thing you can do is have a good plan, you know, for what to do when it does happen. And from an attitude perspective, you just, you cannot get crushed by the fact that things keep going wrong. You got to get back on the horse and hopefully you can laugh about how the horse has stupid legs. (laughs) (laughs) Life's hard, but when you find your path in life, you'll find fulfillment. I'm Sam Coates, and welcome to the Driven By Podcast. On this show, I talk to people with purpose. In hearing these stories and conversations, my hope is that you'll see your path, which will bring out the best in you. Follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram at Sam P. Coates, and learn more about my guests and subscribe to the show at drivenbypodcast.com. My guests this week are Wiseacre Brewery founders, Devin and Kellen Bartosh. Devin and Kellen launched Wiseacre in 2013, and it has been a huge success. I wanted to have a conversation with Devin and Kellen to learn how they have generated such momentum in a crowded craft beer market. In this conversation, we talk about going all in at the beginning, building Wiseacre their way, living with challenges and ambiguity, and more. Just one thing, on this episode, you may notice a little bit of background noise, some scratching for the first eight minutes or so. After that, everything else is good. Hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. I'll just make this easy. Do you need insurance? Do you want another opinion about your insurance? Just go ahead and call Matt Haga with State Farm. It'll be easy. If you're thinking about it, just do it. We do have listeners to this show from all over the world. So this offers only for listeners in the state of Tennessee and Mississippi in the United States. Matt Haga State Farm offers auto, home, renters, business, and life insurance. Go to madhaga.com. That's M-A-T-T-H-A-A-G-A.com and contact them. When you contact Matt, tell him I sent you. Now more than ever, it is harder to fly. That's why you need to know of AB Jets. If you want to be efficient with your time and fly with one of the safest private air companies in the world, then you need to use AB Jets. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S., Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Hey, everybody. I have one last quick cool company to tell you about. Are you like a majority of Americans who love the idea of working from home when you want to? If you do, then I bet you'll like to check out havenspaces.org. Havenspace lets you design the outdoor office of your dreams, but we make it easy and build and ship directly to you. Go to havenspaces.org. That's H-A-V-E-N-S-P-A-C-E-S.org to learn more and see how to connect with us. Full disclosure, I do own this company, but I'm willing to put it out here on this podcast 
because I know it'll make your life better. And they look pretty awesome too. Now we're going to get back to the show. I had just a unique, interesting time watching some of the beer critics on YouTube. The people that sit there and film themselves, you know, while they're pouring the beer and they're giving their commentary on the taste of it. I know that's done professionally. I know the craft, but I'm talking about like all the kind of wannabe brewmasters out there that put up their own YouTube page. And I was curious, do you have any bizarre or just strange, funny stories, maybe a beer critic out there and y'all's experience with them with Wiseacre? Most of those people are pretty nice, I think. Are you familiar with Untapped? Well, yes, I looked at some of their stuff yesterday, but it was only about y'all, and it was good. It's like Facebook for people that drink beer or something. Okay. Where you rate beers. So we used to make this beer. We probably need to make it again, but it's called Dr. Gibbler. Uh, it's a smoked beer, but it's very light in color. So it's it's kind of a lie. Like, you look at it, and it's very clear and very beautiful. But, you know, it's it's an unbelievable amount of flavor. It's very smoky, like like a campfire almost. And, you know, the first time we made it, I think it was kind of a surprise to some of the people that were drinking it. And somebody wrote on untapped, I still haven't saved on my phone, but they said it, it smelled like you ate a burnt log and farted on some bacon, <laughs> which the beer is delicious. It's like one of my favorite things ever to drink, Yeah, but it's just, you can't please everybody. You know, and we, we try to make some things that are unique and, uh, you know, and fun. And, and lots of people just love, love, love that beer. I'm one of them. But, you know, everybody experiences flavor differently. People see color differently. You know, your green is not my green, et cetera. Yeah. It's fun to read some of them. And, you know, at, at Wiseacre, we always say it's fine to say you don't like it, but it's not okay to say it's bad because, you know, you're bad and someone else is bad or not the same thing. Well, not to mention that there are actually bad beers. I mean, off flavors do exist, you know, whether it's, you know, from oxidation or something metallic or cardboard flavored or whatever, like off flavors exist. And there are some actual bad beers, but there are also beers that are good to some people, not good to others. And it's, you know, not everybody likes Thai food. That doesn't mean it's bad. Beauty's an eye of the beholder. Yeah. When y'all were first starting or David, I've, you know, read and heard you talk about quality, quality, quality. And I know you were salutatorian of the beer university. David, did you, did you take things personally more early on? And that's something that you kind of learn, you know, it just might not be somebody else's deal, but how was that early on? I'd say to some degree, I, I took it more personally, but also I just really like, I like fighting with people. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, not fighting. I, I enjoy a spirited argument. So I feel like it turns out the internet is not the place for that. <laughs> I sort of deep down wish it was. Yeah. Kellen, what about you? So, you work for Sierra Nevada and correct me if I'm wrong. Was your background in more the marketing sales aspect and, and David's more just strictly the brewing or did you also do brewing as well? What was that like? Yeah, it was, it was more sales marketing and that was kind of our plan. We were, David was homebrewing really in college. I think his freshman year started homebrewing. So that would have been in 1999 and kind of slowly through college and he was still doing it. And then after college got like a much more advanced kind of homebrew set and he was really into it. And, that's what he wanted for Christmas and his birthday was more stuff to do homebrew. And I was tagging along some, but I think just, you know, it started out for me as David's brother, like he was trying to find out what his career was. And I was maybe finishing up college and was like, you got to figure out how to make brewing your thing. Cause it's just, he's not the type to have a typical job. And after a couple months of that, and then I was out of college, I was like, you know what, we should figure out how 
to open a brewery one day. So we, we very intentionally went different directions and that's why I ended up getting a job with a beer distributor and then a brewery. And I was going to grad school in Nashville, just all kind of working towards this. David, I mean, I think if you hung out with us, like socially, we can be pretty similar. I think we like laugh at the same things and all that, but we're really different people. And David has always been, uh, he went to a cooking camp when he was a kid. He was really good at chess. He's a great racquetball player. Like he just can, he's he, like, he's really good at doing stuff by himself, like racquetball. He's really thorough. He has a much more kind of scientific and mechanical mind than I do. I, I don't, you know, I don't tell anybody I'm a brewer. And when we opened, I was, you know, like the de facto assistant brewer, but that was never kind of the long-term deal. So when we were able to hire some folks, I kind of, I didn't do anything else in brewing. I was still packaging for a while, but that is not what I do on a regular basis. I think I know beer well, having worked in it for a long time and having the certified Cicerone, but it, that, that stuff's more geared towards you know, the service part of beer anyway, the Cicerone, kind of like a sommelier for, for wine. In, in Nashville, did you go to Vanderbilt or where'd you go? I was at Belmont doing this kind of grad program, a, a mini MBA that it was, I w- took it just with the explicit purpose of like thinking about, you know, what became Wiseacre. But I was doing that at, at night when I was working for a beer distributor. So you're pretty logical from a standpoint of, you'll figure this out early on and then you kind of laid out a plan on what it would take to really try to make a run at this thing. And you started working that plan. And then, I mean, it was pretty scripted or planned out. I think so. But I mean, as scripted as it could be, I think we were very much like true believers to our cause. I, you know, I remember like in those years, I would tell somebody that, you know, my brother and I would open a brewery one day and somebody was like, I'm going to open a coffee shop where you can do karate. And I was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> we're really going to do this, you know, that kind of, but it was more like in my head, I'd have those conversations. So David is telling a funny story. I, my favorite story along the way was when I worked for a beer distributor. I went into this account that had a pit bull named Carlito, and there was like a 40 ounce store, and like Carlito's, you know, urine was all over the place. And <laughs> I remember the shop owner like pulled a gun and was like yelling at the guys playing dominoes in there, and like I like, ducked like, on the ground and it's like kept working. And I got up, and everybody was like, Oh, you were afraid. And I was like, Man, I'm just being safe. And I went outside and I called Dave and I was like, all right, we're, we're really going to open a brewery one day, right? Because I don't know if I want to do this every day, but it was all. Put it, yourself it, in harm's way. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> working and learning all that stuff, it's all been a huge part of what's enabled us to have a good business here. David Kellen just referenced the homebrew kit and Christmas. And, you know, I know you've written about going to Sam Adams, going up there in high school, but curious what was it about home brewing or beer, being a brewmaster, et cetera? What drew you to that early on? I think it's just, I mean, it's kind of an extension of cooking. It's a way to create something and, you know, think about something, but it's, it's active. I don't do super well sitting still. I don't sit at work, really. This is like the only time I'm sitting at work is right now. Yeah. So, you know, I think, I think that's part of it. It's, it's a way that you can kind of be... You know, be a nerd, but still look cool while you're doing it. I think it, it kind of all comes from that stuff. I really, I, I like the creative process a lot, but I'm really just, in, I just love processes. Like I just love the repetition. It's kind of, it's, it's Zen-like to a certain degree. I mean, I love cooking at home for the same reason. It's, it's, it's cathartic. Looking back early on when y'all talked about some of the stuff you brewed at the beginning that was not good. What do you think you, you know now that you kind of were not getting right 
maybe early on or maybe not even not getting right, but just kind of learning the hard way? Yeah. I mean, that, that was a reference to when I was homebrewing. It, it just, uh, before you really have an understanding of why things happen and you're just, you're following steps, but you don't understand the, the reason it's easy to make little mistakes that you don't really know how to fix. So I'd say that's most of it. I had the privilege of working for uh, Rock Bottom, which is a, a large brew pub chain in the U.S. And that was after I got out of brewing school, but I really had a chance to uh, experiment and screw up and, uh, you know, make beers that, that I really liked a lot and, and do it, you know, thankfully on somebody else's dime for a while. Yeah. I feel like we had amazing beer day one. I think the stuff you, you heard was probably referencing that, like you said, but, you know, Tiny Bomb won a, a bronze medal at the Great American Beer Festival. Yes, the first sir. able to enter. And I think to a lot of people, it was like, wow, you know, a brand new thing did really well. And that's the most important kind of beer competition. It's all blind tasting in the country. But David had really been making Tiny Bomb for like six years before that. And, you know, making Pilsners over and over and over again and tweaking them and adding things and taking things away and all that until he, you know, thought it was right. And then the first time we made it in Memphis, it tasted even better because Memphis has great water for lagers. So he was able to experiment and have trial and error somewhere else. And that, you know, that all led up to, you know, Tiny Bomb winning that accolade. It wasn't, it wasn't like an overnight thing. I think there was a ton of work and, and mistakes and, you know, bad batches or whatever before that. You know, I know y'all just opened your second facility, a very nice facility and second tap room in downtown Memphis. But early on, or even the first few years in, has money ever been a driver for y'all? No, I mean, it's not, it isn't like a personal one. I mean, I think the the thing that you don't think about when you're trying to start a business is like employees. And, you know, we, we have some now and <laughs> we have a lot of really great ones. And I think we're close to 50 when you include part-time now, but full-time it's, you know, a little over 20, but, you know, we have people that work here that we, to do a great job that we care about and in order for them to be able to kind of advance their careers and for them to, you know, to make their jobs better jobs, the business, you know, needs to keep growing for that. So it's not like a, you know, personal money motivator, if that was your, your question, but I think we definitely want the business to keep growing for a whole bunch of reasons. And we also have the opportunity to do it. And that I think is pretty unique. So we've, we've continued, we've, it's happened fast, but we've, we, we have, I think we have a lot more to, to do. And I think the new facilities gives us a long runway to, to grow. And uh, we're excited about that. Well, I think we'll get there and I can't wait to unpack it. Curious, you know, we always hear about water, and I'm sure people that know beer well, you know, will know this, but for those that don't, myself or others that listen, what is it exactly about being in Memphis with the water that helps the beer, the lager, the way that you talked about it, that makes it such an advantage being here? We actually use San Pellegrino in all of our- <laughs> <laughs> It gets expensive, but, you know, we figure what the hell quality is the most important. Uh-huh. We only use San Pellegrino. <laughs> Uh, the, the water in Memphis is, uh, is unique in that it has almost no mineral content whatsoever. It's pretty much just H2O. Most of the water, you know, that, that people are using from municipal sources is, uh, it runs through some sort of rock or Uh other mineral contaminant. 
before people will get a chance to use it. Um, in our case, the water gets filtered through sand, uh, which, you know, sand is silica, which is not reactive. So it really, it, it acts as a, as a filter. It's, it does the opposite thing that happens to most people's water. So we have mineral-free water, which, which makes it easy to build your water with uh, minerals that we add to uh, certain types of beer. Uh, or in the case of Tiny Bomb, you really have a chance to let, let the really clean water source shine. Gotcha. Yeah, what David's saying is like, you know, on an IPA or something, we might add the calcium carbonate or whatever, and for whatever uh, doubts, add calcium. What Kellen's trying to say carbonate. is what I was saying. <laughs> what? We can do it, but what, um, what I'm, I'm trying to say the inverse of it, too. Somebody who starts with really hard water has a really tough time. You didn't say that, getting, getting it to be as soft as ours. So if you're making lagers or Hefeweizen, it's really tough to get, if you're like in Phoenix, to get water that, that works for that. We can build up to have water like Phoenix's if we want to or whatever, but we have a, a great starting place with soft water. I don't know the data on this because I just, I didn't even think about it, but are there breweries around only like in certain parts of the country that make a lager just because of that, what you just said? No, people make them all over the place. I mean, it's very expensive, but, you know, you can filter your water in certain ways, too. If you're familiar with Memphis history, you know, the Coors Brewery used to be here. Yeah. And Coors picked this place for their facility because it was the closest match for water to what they had in Golden, which is is very similar in that it has extremely low mineral content. Gotcha. The water is only like part of the equation too, right? I mean, it's just because you have right water. I mean, it doesn't mean you can make great lagers. Obviously you've got to have a good recipe and you've got to have great equipment and you can't make, you know, great beer with, you know, pots and pans really. And you've got to be able to troubleshoot when something goes wrong and uh, in the cellar and something always goes wrong. And so how do you steer and, and, you know, guide yeast to get to do what you want to do. So it, it's not like the water itself just, lets you do something amazing i think another unique thing about us in general is certainly the water helps but david has a real passion for making great lagers and i would say not a lot of craft breweries that's something that's at the top of their mission and that's always been part of ours you know we love light lager we we, we do everything we do hoppy belgian beers and barrel aged beers but our founding brewmaster loves pilsner he loves hellas lager and so that drives a lot of the things we do too kellen can you just in layman's terms, maybe talk about David and his education, his experience, and just what might be easy to not really fully appreciate him with being a brewmaster here, being in Memphis. Could you, in layman's terms, could you just quickly maybe say what you think about that? Sure. I, you know, I gave a tour to my in-laws the other day because they came downtown to see the facility. And I was like, just talking a lot about David. And I was like, man, I probably sound like a dud because all I'm doing is talking about my brother. But when you're looking at, you know, the brewing equipment and, you know, that's really his world and not mine. So I think, you know, like any job, people's skills and natural talents are a huge part of it. That's kind of why I mentioned like cooking camp stuff and even like racquetball. He's always been able to kind of zone out and hyper-focus on things. So he's got you know, a personality for it with the kind of science and engineering brain. And then he, you know, went to brewing school. So that's like, you know, going to med school. They don't let you just start doing heart surgery, you know, before you go to med school. He went to brewing school. Not that they're the same thing. Uh, <laughs> they're not. And then he had a good mentor. So he was an assistant brewer for a guy named uh, Pete Crowley, who is won a ton of medals on an international level 
had been brewing in Chicago for 20 years. And I think that was a huge part of it too. Like you could get out of brewing school and go work, you know, for somebody who has terrible habits and techniques and, you know, not learn. So he had that theoretical knowledge, but then he had really good practical knowledge and experience as an assistant there. Uh, then he had a couple more years where he was, you know, in charge of a brew pub. And we kind of mentioned that experimentation phase and trial and error on his own. He got to have. So that's I mean, that's like, you know, for one, the personality skill set, all that kind of stuff. That's like a lifetime stuff you can't teach. But then he had, you know, really almost a decade worth of experience and training in school and mentor that that helped get him to where he is. And then I think once we got here, I learned a lot more as we were like working together at Wiseacre, just about how his brain works and his attention to detail. And like it, every day we're trying to make tiny bomb a little bit better. Like it's, it's never like a done deal. And it's so that determination, I think, you know, we're dealing with crops where, you know, with hops and, and barley, they change every year. David at this point is traveling to different parts of the country and world to get ingredients that we you know, think you're going to make our beers just a little bit better while also trying to keep them really consistent. And it, I, maybe the, the the last thing I'll add, I think I already said that, but it's just, he's kind of like a junior electrician plumber. He's, you know, he can fix a lot of our equipment and I think save us a lot of headache and pain to the bank account by being able to work on our equipment and help keep this machine running because things go wrong a lot. Yeah. Besides that, I hate him. <laughs> Do y'all think y'all could be where you're at now? and be where you're working towards without having the backgrounds that y'all have had. I mean, obviously from a brute master standpoint, I know that's got to be there, but kind of all these other experiences that we talked about at the very beginning. Now, generally things that are consumable, you know, food, drink, music, et cetera, people get passionate about them, which is good. But I feel like a lot of times passion can lead to bad decisions. So I think, you know, we, we ran into this with a lot of excitement, but also with the idea that we needed to make sure that we knew what we were doing. So we both went and got a lot of experience before, uh, before we opened the brewery. There's, you know, people, there's a lot of breweries happening and I I'm not, wouldn't point out like a specific one and say something not nice, but you'll read a story and it's like, you know, this accountant and lawyer followed their passion for beer to open a brewery. And I always read that and I'm like, you know, what if David and I decided that we liked accounting and like, you know, this brewer and beer salesperson follow their passion for tax to open an accounting firm. Like we, we would be terrible. at. It. it doesn't matter that we're passionate about tax. Like it's not what we learned how to do. And, and somehow that gets discounted, you know, when it's our industry at times, like, Oh, that's awesome for them. But you know, and maybe there's, there's people that are that skill and talented that they can get around it. But I think it matters a ton, like the same as it would for an accountant to go get their CPA. And, you know, like it, it, it helps you, do better at your job when you've, you've got some experience doing it. David, can you talk about where you think you might've been without Kellen and without his experience? What would have happened if you were a one man show? I, I loved beer and I love brewing, but it, it definitely, it wouldn't be a company. It wouldn't be a business. I, I have some organizational capability, but not, uh, not in that way. So I think in a lot of ways, especially from like a sales and, not just sales, but marketing and just kind of how to relate with the outside world. Kellen's always been a lot better at that than I've been. <laughs> Kellen, what do you think was top two or three things that you learned prior that have helped? You know, we'll maybe unpack this a little bit more, but I saw 8,600 craft breweries in the United States. There's a lot of people 
that do what y'all do, but what y'all have done in this amount of time is incredibly impressive. And it's a very, it seems like a very fragmented market. So obviously there's a lot of things that y'all have done and y'all figured out that other people that probably no question about work ethic, but they just hadn't been able to fully either execute it or understand it the way that y'all have. But I'm curious if you could share maybe two or three things that you feel like you've learned or y'all have done that have helped y'all get to this point. Yeah, I, I don't think the beer business, it's not, it isn't rocket science either, but it's, it is its own industry. And just like, I mean, every, every, you know, little business world has their own kind of vernacular. And I don't know, Dennis talk about bicuspids. Does that, do they talk about bicuspids when they're off work? I don't know any of them. So <laughs> yeah, well, that, you know, every, every world has its own kind of terminology and language and the beer business is the same thing. Like, and there's ways that beer distributors talk and things that, motivate them. And I I worked for a beer distributor for three and a half years. And then I got to go and work for one of the best breweries in the world in Sierra Nevada. And the guy that was in charge of Sierra Nevada's sales and marketing, Joe Whitney, he worked for Sam Adams in the eighties, New Belgium in the nineties and Sierra Nevada, you know, after that. And so this guy kind of like wrote the book on, on how to grow craft breweries. And he was leading, you know, that department when I was there. So there was a ton I learned, you know, working for Sierra, not to mention I was out West when I worked for them and, you know, really in more kind of advanced beer markets. And I think, you know, there's always something to learn, you know, distributors out there are wearing suits and ties and it's just a very different world than, than it was in the Southeast. So I think that it's all added up to good experience. And the same as, you know, David being able to make tiny bomb taste incredible on, on day one, we, we knew what we were doing when it came to sales and marketing the day that we opened and I was, it was really just doing the job that I'd already done before and just doing it for ourselves instead of doing it for somebody else. So trying to come up with quantifiable goals and, you know, how to measure your business and success. Cause you can, you can have some false positivity or optimism, I guess, with, with sales when like people are like, Oh, we're selling everything that we have, but you know, maybe your rate of sale was really slow. And so you weren't thinking about the future in the right way. So I think, you know, learning about the beer business, learning about things that, that matter, learning how to, it, this sounds cheesy, but, you know, gain tain, like you've got to maintain the placements that you have and you can't, you can't run out of stock. That's a bad thing. It sounds like a good problem when you tell somebody else, but you know, if a bar runs out of your beer and they can't order it for two weeks, they're not going to keep it on. So you've got to be able to kind of properly forecast. And that, that mattered a whole lot early on. And it maybe mattered a little bit less in the middle. And now it matters, you know, a whole lot again, as we're in this kind of growth phase with the new facility. So forecasting, I think is, is a super, that's a, that's definitely something important to learn to it. Yeah. The other ace in the hole that we have, and I don't, you may have had a question planned for this, but Rachel Briggs that does the art and design for all of our beers is, is really incredible. And she's a good friend, a native Memphian that I ran into in Nashville. And when we became really good friends there, we were different ages um, or are different ages, but in high school, yeah, we, we were yes. different ages, and now we're the same. <laughs> we were different grades, so we didn't we didn't hang out a lot growing up. But um, <laughs> we became good friends in, when I was in Nashville, and we were thinking about our cans and art for years as well. It wasn't like an overnight thing, or we like emailed a graphic design firm and we're like, we need four labels in two weeks. Like it was an iterative process and sending things back and forth to each other, and it kind of had time to build and develop in, into what it was as well. And that was amazing day one, I think in terms of our, our brand and, and she's won a ton of acclaim for that. So that, that certainly mattered at the start and still matters. 
Yeah, I, I think it was on. It might have been on that beer app that y'all were talking about, David. You were talking about at the very beginning. But I just I've got a quote here. Their design is gorgeous. Their attitude is smart, and their beers. It's like those two things before even talking about the quality of the beers. So y'all's reputation with the design and what everything that you just said. There's just a lot of chatter about that as well, which is really cool. Did y'all fund this yourself? No, <laughs> no, but we did both put our, I mean, everything we had into it. And we think we both, I took out two loans. I think they I took did. Out two loans. we both took out two loans to kind of, you know, fund our part of it. And it, and that, I mean, it took me four or five years to you know, end up paying those things back. But we had an initial partner who's still part of the business. And so it was the three of us. And we added um, some new, a new partner with the recent building as well. And that's been really good. I think it's, I think we've learned a lot and certainly made mistakes, but you know, we, we knew the things that we knew about making beer and selling beer and all that kind of stuff, but it's been really good to have other voices and input and guidance along the way when you're, you know, trying to come up with a legal structure for your business. And, uh, you know, I think we were always taught to just be like afraid of debt, but there's, there is such a thing as good debt and there's times to invest and grow in the future knowing that it might take years to pay something off, but, you know, being able to kind of forecast, I was talking about forecasting with beer. I mean, there's a way to forecast with, with money that can really be helpful in a, in a guiding light for, and so to have, have good wisdom on those things has been crucial. Yeah. So y'all just early on, I guess, back in what, 13, y'all just identified an amount of money that was needed to get this thing going. And there needed to be a certain amount of liquidity and y'all's partner put in some, whatever that was. And then y'all came up with the other two for y'all's shares of the partnership and y'all borrowed money and just put that cash in and bought equipment and started rolling just y'all too. Yeah. We, um, I, <laughs> I had a, a program I had found and it was kind of like helped you create a pro forma. And I remember David and I emailing and talking back and forth and he was getting quotes from companies and we we're trying to think about, you know, utilities and like, just try to get your head around all that stuff and ended up having somebody giving me some assistance on that over time too, before it kind of became the, the final thing. But, but yeah, we just built a business plan like that. And I moved back to Memphis May of 2012 and uh, finished out that kind of business model and took the bus up to Chicago actually a couple of times before David ended up coming back down and he moved back, I guess the week of Thanksgiving that year, or was it Christmas? I think it was December like, 1st. It was around a holiday. Mm -hmm. that, yeah. So they moved back in December of 2012. And then we opened in Labor Day of 2013. Side note, I uh, I have some experience on that bus from Chicago to Memphis. Because, Megabus? yes, my buddy and I, my roommate, close friend of mine, we had a good time at the Goose Island Brewery and we missed our train. Uh, we showed up when it was going down the tracks and just saw the red light. So we had to get back to Memphis. So we had to go to the Greyhound station. And uh, I don't wish that experience on anybody taking the Greyhound from Chicago to Memphis. Yeah. We rode the Megabus. Yeah. I, I remember that the Megabus was a pretty funny experience too. Cause I was, I know I was reading the Lord of the Rings books, which is pretty, I just remember that uh, going to visit David and I was like, I probably shouldn't go to sleep was a thought that I had <laughs> on the Megabus. Cause like, I don't know what happened, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> it was, it was funny. I didn't have a job. I mean, I, you know, 
we had identified our partner, but we hadn't formed the business yet. And I remember him saying, I was like, well, I'm about to start this job. And he was like, well, if I'm going to be your partner, I don't, you can't have a job. I need you focused on getting this started. And I was like, uh, I'm not money. I don't, <laughs> he was like, I don't care. Like, I was like, well, shoot. <laughs> can you just early on curious if you can talk about even just briefly, what were the things that you focused on and that y'all both focused on, obviously making beers one, making great beer, but to really get to market, make a splash, and then to kind of have the momentum when it's just y'all too early on. Can you talk about what you focused on or what you were trained for that paid off? Hmm. I don't know that there's like a really deep answer to it. I mean, I think our experience mattered. And then I think, you know, kind of instincts mattered after that. And I give David a lot of credit or all the credit really for Tiny Bomb because he fell in love with Pilsner and you think about like craft beer in like the nineties and you know, it, it, the whole point of it was to be completely different from Bud Miller Coors. And that was needed. Like, you know, stone dogfish head and you know, all their, the things that those breweries say, like in their taglines, like off centered beers for off centered people, whatever. It was like the anti, you know, light American adjunct lager. And I think Dave and very early on in his like you know, actual education just thought like, that's dumb. Like this should just be about beer and like, you can make really good light lager. It's, you know, it doesn't get back to like some sort of food analogy. It, it, you don't have to have really exotic food for it to be good food. Like, you know, pizza is great food. And same as, same as that, like light lager can be great beer and it's what people drink most of the time anyway. So, and it can be very flavorful and still be light. Yeah. So he, he really wanted to do Pilsner, for years before we opened and I kind of didn't get it. I mean, I was working for a brewery that made hoppy beers and made beers with a lot of like kind of bigger mouthfeel and delicious beers. But so tiny bomb, you know, very quickly became something for us that mattered a lot in terms of distinguishing us. And, you know, we, uh, I think just did a lot of things that we thought felt right. And I, I think when you have a lot of good experience and, you know, you're able to kind of follow your gut like that, I think people, felt like they were kind of a part of that story. I think that's something unique about craft beer is like people, you know, want, like there are stories on the art and it's not, you can't, you know, if you have the same kind of graphic design as like an oatmeal box and people aren't as drawn to it. And so I think whatever, anything we did like in the tap room or put on social media, it was all us doing it. And it kind of just felt like we were having a party at our house every day and at the tap room that is. And I think people felt and hopefully still feel like they're a part of, you know, what's going on here. It's not like a thing that a business machine spit out, but it's just an extension of us. Yeah. Y'all definitely seem very yourselves and y'all seem like y'all have just maintained that and tried to do everything you can not to give it up. Like I watched that video when y'all opened up the new facility downtown and y'all were hitting like exploding golf balls with color. It was fun. It was funny. I'm curious when you're starting out, and then something just really goes and really grows. Did ever feel like any pressure, like you couldn't be yourselves or it was getting more than what you wanted? Was there any really hard lessons early on from a production standpoint, just kind of keeping up? I mean, is there anything you can speak to the reality of going for it and it working and then just bumps and bruises along the way or pressure to kind of change and, and kind of lose who you were when you first started? I think Kellen alluded to it a little bit before, but I think I tend to work by myself a little bit better than better than with other people. So I think working here, I feel like it has taught me how to be 
definitely a better manager, but just sort of how to get along with people better and how to get the job done, not by myself. I definitely remember about eight months after we opened up, I we had hired uh, one of my good friends from brewing school who had moved down from Montana and another uh, one of my friends that had brewed with me in Chicago had moved down here as well to help. And I remember looking at, you know, the whole thing one day and just being like, well, you know, I can't do this by myself anymore. <laughs> and as long as I had been brewing before that, I had never thought I would be unable to do this by myself. And it, it really kind of changed the way I thought about the business and the work. And, you know, it, it's, it's become a job that's much for me, that's much more management focused, uh, as opposed to like the day in day out processes, which I also love, but you know, it's, it's a different kind of process. Do you miss being hands-on and doing the work? Yeah, definitely. Is it worth it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it's just a different, a, a different thing altogether. You know, you plan something for 10 years and then you get to where you planned like eight months after you open it and you're like, well, you know, now we're just reacting. Like, so <laughs> it's, you're, you're not operating from a script like you were at the beginning. You know, you've been thinking about everything for so long and then, then it just becomes, you know, you're, re- you're reacting to things because you get past immediately where you thought you'd be. I think when we opened, we were working 20 hour days fairly regularly. And, you know, it was, it was crazy, but in some ways, like that was the easiest time because we, it was just us and, you know, we can process things quickly because we're brothers and we can get really mad at each other and then it not matter. And like, you can't just get mad at people, you know, that work for you. And I think there was a really stressful period where we were maybe understaffed and everybody was overworked. And I think we both wanted to kind of like default to like, I wanted to go out and sell and David wanted to just make beer. And I was like, just, you know, but what I think we've, we do now and what we needed to kind of become was you just, you know, our core vision of what we wanted Wiseacre to be is still like the most important thing, but we're like constantly kind of recasting a vision and then kind of planning around the ways that we change. And because we're a brewery, you know, it might take an average of three weeks to make beer from when you start the process, but it really takes, you know, months of planning because you're ordering ingredients and, you know, trying to predict outcomes of what's going to happen out in the world. And so that, I think that's become more of what he and I do is like recasting a vision and planning or getting the planning started. We have people that work here that are better at planning than us, but we've got to get that going in the direction, you know, that it needs to go and, I've already said it a couple of times, but we've got some really incredible people here that are better than us at putting a lot of those things in, into the works on a daily basis. So I remember when y'all first opened, I think it's when y'all first opened, but I watched a video and y'all said we make sacrifices. And when you're doing it right, it work doesn't really feel like work. And then you talked about how you wanted to give people a certain feeling when you think about beer, the way that y'all love beer I'm curious, have y'all gone through seasons where you've kind of lost that enjoyment, that satisfaction, or that kind of draw that you had in the in the beginning? I certainly think it it comes and goes. And it's not I mean, it's still it's still work. And like I think anything in life can become monotonous and like you don't listen to the same band every day or whatever. I don't know. I'm trying to find a good analogy or just eat the same thing for dinner every night. And so I think 
you know, different things might be motivating now. Like, I don't think we, neither of us drink as much beer as we used to probably. That might be more a result of having kids than anything else. But For um, sure. I would drink way more beer if I didn't have kids. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we both still love beer. I mean, I, you know, whenever we have something new come out, it's always really fun to drink it. And then I, th- I feel like I just go back to drinking Tiny Bomb after I drink that one pint of the new thing. You know, I somewhat out of necessity and somewhat out of interest. I think I'm, I'm just, I want to be a good business owner and good leader for our company. Those are like different things. I didn't think about that, you know, the first couple of years that we were open and that's maybe just like a change in perspective on it. I don't know. It's a tough question. I mean, I definitely, it definitely kind of comes and goes. My answer to that question would just be no. <laughs> David's the same person he was in ninth grade. Uh, <laughs> You've changed. Yeah, I, I have. But I, I, I sort of touched on it earlier in the, in the conversation. I mean, I think changing more to management and just not being able to uh, be the only person doing everything, it, you know, it kind of messes with your, at least in my case, I have, you know, kind of a perfectionist, view of making beer and that still definitely comes out in our finished product but i can't physically touch every single beer i taste i try every single beer that we make but i I don't you know i don't handhold every single beer all the way through because there's can't it's impossible but i wouldn't say that i've ever been like man i'm less passionate about beer than i was at the beginning i might be more focused than i was at the beginning i mean i think I think I went from just wanting to make every beer under the sun to right now. I feel like I, you know, that I've, I have a more focused view of like what things I want to do really well. And I still, I still like to play around. I'm not saying that that's not uh, fun and it's not valuable anymore. I just think the things that I am more likely to drink more often, I am way more focused on. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card. It gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. Early on, and even maybe now, can you talk any about from a demand side and trying to keep up with it or, you know, when when you're growing revenue and if it exceeds, in the case that it exceeds projections, et cetera, can you talk maybe if there is any challenges with supply, you know, when you're trying to manage and trying to produce excellent quality beer, but then also too, if like demand picks up, like what's that like in the day-to-day environment that you're in? There have been times where uh, raw ingredients have been hard to manage. I mean, right now, aluminum is a, a big issue. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but some of some of our cans have labels on them now. Um, sometimes it's a can that uh, you know from a, a different beer. Like you might get a you might get a guy to get up to get down can that has a tiny bomb label on it. It's because COVID has made everybody drink beverages out of cans. You know, people that used to drink uh, sodas from grocery stores and gas stations from fountains are basically only drinking out of cans now. So it's made it a lot harder to get the the cans that we've, you know, we've relied on since we first opened. So that's definitely a big concern from a, from a raw ingredient standpoint right now. Um, but, you know, there's been hop shortages and, you know, bad years of, of malt growing. So every year, I feel like every year there's something like this that, that pops up. But, you know, I think, you know, Kellen will have a different answer to, to that from, you know, kind of his, his world. You know, we have a perishable product. So finished goods, like, is another thing that you're trying to juggle. And there is some sort of, like, predictable ebb and flow to things. Like, Super Bowl weekend is usually a good, you know, beer sales weekend. But it's still, like, you know, you get draft handles, especially during a normal year. They come and go in ways that you can't expect and things go up and down. And so you always want to make sure you have inventory to sell, but you don't want to have too much because it's perishable and it could go, it doesn't go bad. Like, you know, you're going to get sick from it, but it can lose flavor and aroma, all that kind of stuff. So that's, I think that I mentioned that earlier. I think that was a huge thing that we did well from the start also was kind of manage and forecast, you know, properly, not just like, dude, we're out of beer, come back. Two weeks, like not, not good for business, even though it might feel good in the moment. So, I mean, we've always juggled that. Yeah, and we're, I mean, we're in actually a big, you know, crunch right now. And a lot of our people are stressed about it because we're, we're in nine states right now, but we're not in Kentucky, which is funny because we share a huge border. But we're adding Kentucky, North and South Carolina, New Jersey, and Colorado statewide. We're also adding a brand new beer, uh, a year-round beer that is, not just like a one-off. And we're adding a uh, variety pack all those are all coming in february and march and so that's an enormous challenge and we don't know how exactly we're going to figure it out you know at this moment we have planning meetings at least once a week for it but i'm sure we're going to do it so there are challenges like if we were just going to make tiny bomb only forever it would be a lot easier but as it stands now we have eight year-round beers a seasonal line Memfresh, like a rotating hoppy beer line. And we have, we, you know, usually do about 20 kind of one-off beers a year. We do barrel aging. So we're, we're juggling a lot on that front. So are y'all doubling y'all's projections because of those states or close to it? No. And I mean, so Tennessee is still, we still sell most of our beer in Tennessee and Memphis is our biggest market. Nashville's our number two market. And you know, we sell beer in Chicago and Philadelphia, which are two of the biggest cities in the country, but we sell more beer in Knoxville than we sell in either of those places. So the same as like, you know, we've done, we sell a ton of beer in our home state. Like it's kind of silly to think that we could go into Pennsylvania and try to, you know, keep up with victory or trogues. Like they've got great breweries up there. I think it's really cool that we have enough of a reputation that we can, like we're about to sell beer in Colorado. That's incredible people out there want our beer. The distributors want our beer, but we're not going to go out there and, you know, outsell Avery or something like that. So anyway, it's not going to double our capacity. I think we're excited about the spring that we're going to have, but it's not anywhere close to doubling what we're doing. I think that the new brewery, we could quintuple our capacity from, from broad, but that's not going to happen just with those things that I said this year. 
Could you have handled those new states with only the broad location or is all, was all that contingent on the new location downtown? It was all contingent on the new location. We were, I guess in 2016, we kind of maxed out what we could really do on broad and Dave and the staff, you know, early guy was getting there at five in the morning and the late guy might leave at three in the morning and we couldn't make any more than we were making on broad. And like with a state like Colorado or North and South Carolina, what, what is that like? The distributor there, they've been coming at y'all for a while, trying to get y'all to send them beer and y'all just been like, ah, we can't do it. We can't do it. And, and then, I mean, is that kind of what the process looks like? Yeah, kind of. I mean, there's certainly a lot more that like that goes into it on just paperwork and registration and all that kind of stuff. But I think, you know, we, we had a lot of unfulfilled demand over the years and it, it doesn't, it's not like it lasts forever. I mean, there's plenty of things I could think of in places where we, that opportunity doesn't exist anymore, but for them in particular, it was all kind of lining up with last spring when we had the new facility up and running and with COVID, everybody just didn't really know what to do. So everyone said like, we're not going to bring in anything new right now. And I think thankfully for us, almost all those people in the summertime are like, you know, I know COVID's not going anywhere. The new normal, if that's a phrase to be used, people, they still wanted our beer. They still want to work with us. And so they were like, let's start thinking about spring of 21. And here we are. So really thankful that opportunity has not completely disappeared. And, you know, we're, we're not going to launch those markets in a traditional sense. We're not going to have like events at bars. We'll save that, you know, for a time when everyone is comfortable doing that, but we're going to start shipping beer out to, to new places pretty soon. Yeah. It just sounds like y'all have to live with a lot of ambiguity and a lot of unknowns, even the way you're talking about aluminum or talking about this demand, which is incredible, but you're like, I don't really know how we're going to figure it out, but we're going to figure it out. I mean, has that kind of been there the whole time? Yeah. You know, I, I almost said something about that earlier. I feel like that's, I don't know if that's part of the entrepreneurial spirit or something, or if Dave and I are just stupid, but a lot of times where people that work here that don't naturally, they're not okay with that gray area. It's, it can be really tough. Like, how are we going to navigate this? And, you know, we're okay with like jumping off the cliff and figuring out how we're going to land on the way down. And I think that's part of, you know, what makes businesses grow for sure is somebody who's willing to do that and willing to take a chance and take risks. So I don't think we certainly now more than ever with, with what's going on in the world, we don't have the answers. You know, I think we were, we were raised to be a little risky, but also, you know, to be comfortable in chaos. I, I feel like I perform better when the shit is hitting the fan than I do when everything's okay. What is it about that? Or what do you focus on? What do you latch on to that makes you kind of double down on what you think is most important to really kind of deal with it and to come out on the other end of it much better? Yeah. I mean, for my side, like just solving problems is it's like the, it's, you know, it's the most rewarding thing that, that we do. Like something went wrong in the brewery. Why did it go wrong? How do we fix it? How do we keep it from ever happening again? It's constant learning and adaptation. I think <laughs> this, I don't know how this is going to sound, but like, I think we're both competitive in our own ways. And people always, when you say competitive, people think about like sports, which is not what I'm saying, but I think we're both competitive. And so when there's something that's challenging, like we want to figure out how to defeat it or something. And, and I, don't, I don't know if that's the same thing. It's just like being from Memphis, but I feel like that's a strong part of this too, where like, you know, if somebody says something, you're like, what? 
Yeah, and I, I just accredited that to Memphis, but I feel like our, our parents very much embodied that. My, our mom is from New Jersey. Our dad's from, from St. Louis. They're both just like tough people. And we saw our mom, I think, stand up for herself in, in a, lot of, a lot of unique ways growing up that maybe some Southern boys did not. And I think we're appreciative of that. And I think our dad, the same way, would, you know, put his foot down when if integrity was on the line or something like that. And we, that was, you know, modeled out for us and, you know, not to be afraid of anybody or anything. And like, you know, it's maybe my dad, to his detriment at times. If like he didn't agree with his boss, he wasn't going to kiss their butt and he was going to tell them what he thought. And Scrappy. Yeah. So when, when something happens, like with, let's say, aluminum or production are there things that y'all have learned to kind of cling to when something's off but in your mind you know you're going to get through it you're going to figure it out is there something you've learned over time over these last nine years that you kind of go back to 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 maintain good relationships with your distributors to deal with it to deal with that ambiguity but to cling to it to give you time to work through the problem is there anything you can share on that there's a song we like to sing when things are going bad (laughs) I feel like when <laughs> when things get really tough and we feel like we have insurmountable problems, you know, it's it's easy, you know, to think that we're in big trouble and and this could be the end. But then we're surrounded by beer, uh, so we we drink a beer, and then that's usually the thing that makes everything okay again. What would that be like production? I mean, it can't be. Y'all sound on top of your game and y'all have got investors. So it's not like y'all are out there going to the casinos and playing <laughs> the blackjack tables or roulette ta- wheel. I mean, what are insurmountable problems? Is that just merely a, a growth, a scale thing? No, I, I think it, at this point, I, I don't think we really, I don't feel like that anymore. I feel like we can figure out pretty much anything. I, I, I think early on, it was a, it was a very different perspective and, it definitely felt a lot more, a lot more dangerous. And, you know, before anything's really proven, it's, it's a, it's a really different, really different outlook every day. You know, we've laughed a lot. David's better about it than me of like, just trying to find humor, maybe too much, but I think that helped, <laughs> you know, like it just, it just does. And we make fun of each other a lot too. It's one of our unofficial mottos here at Wiseacre is that ridicule equals success. And <laughs> I think that helps you just to stay lighthearted about things again i think david is is really good at this and and better than me but also inappropriately <laughs> times when we need to be serious but <laughs> but it i think it really does help i mean the can thing like we're i think we're good for a couple months but we actually don't know how we're going to get cans after that but i don't know you still have to be able to laugh about it and joke about it and, and i can still be really serious even when i'm joking i was going to say that kanye after his mom died, I remember reading that he was at the airport and he was like laughing with one of his friends and somebody was like, how can you laugh? Like, like his mom and died a couple of days ago. And he was like, what are you talking about? Like, I am very sad, but I'm also like laughing with my friend right now. And I don't know if that makes sense here. What at all. are you talking about? <laughs> so hopeless that humor just totally alleviates the issue. One of the things that kind of just made me happy being a Memphian, I just love the different research and things that these well-known breweries and they were talking about like their biggest competitor, et cetera. It was just Wiseacre. Uh, it just fired me up, especially since 2013. And so it just makes sense to kind of what you're saying about the speed and 
the ambiguity and all the unknowns because I don't know the statistic on this. Y'all would know this more than I would, but y'all are running at a very fast pace, you know, given that you were founded in 2013. So it just sounds like how else could you do what y'all are doing unless it, there was, you know, just a lot of chaos. <laughs> it sounds kind of bad when you say it like that. <laughs> we suck. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, so many people said that we were their biggest competitors? Yeah, there's some financial st- uh, financial websites where you try to look at like revenue and all that kind of stuff. And when you break it down, they list out competitors and things like that. So when I'm trying to understand from a revenue standpoint, I'll look at certain websites. and That's funny. I don't think we necessarily think of other breweries as competitors. And one of our distributors in a different state that, that I won't name said that a brewery in that city told them they were afraid of us. And I just remember laughing. I was like, what do you mean like afraid of us? And I, you know, we have zero, like we're not trying to target anything. Like we're just trying to, you know, be the best version of us really. And so we, I guess we don't think of others as our competitors necessarily. And I don't think we don't think of other people as in that way. So for what yeah. it's worth, we made one ten thousandth of the amount of beer that Anheuser-Busch made last year. So they must have more disorganization than us. Yes. <laughs> a, little, a little more time too. Yeah, yeah they've, had, they've had a lot of time for sure. When you look at scale, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing because we were the largest brewery in Tennessee, you know, but like that doesn't, we're the largest craft brewery in Tennessee, whatever you want to call it. And we're still like just minuscule compared to Anheuser-Busch like we're well, and compared to the bigger crafts. yeah even compared to Sierra Nevada or or something like that we're still very very tiny um, yeah but how many generations is Sierra Nevada one okay that's a long one but they're like 37 years old or something like that at this point 38 years old yeah but when I mean I'm not trying to sit here and like play devil's advocate and try to like just you know make y'all feel good on this thing but I mean, how many craft breweries are there in every single market, every single city? So to get in, I mean, you would have to logically look at that. And and it's honestly probably even more impressive that you are able to scale out the way you are. And I know there's others, but people are always going to be biased towards the hometown breweries. I mean, is that a fair point or am I off on that? No, I think that's a fair point. You know, you you mentioned the brewery count. It's like 8,200 or something like that right now in the country. So it is it is a crowded marketplace for sure we from 2013 until 2016 we were the eighth fastest growing brewery in the country then we kind of plateaued you know with the the first facilities capacity and i do think a lot of people if you look at those 8,000 breweries the vast majority of them are selling in their hometown i think that's you know kind of an, an achievable goal but it's really hard these days to sell beer in the next city over like it's not because that city has dozens of breweries and, you know, two cities away and, you know, one state away like that, it's, you know, it gets tough. And so I think we're really thankful. I mean, I'm thankful that David's really good at making beer because I think that's the most important thing we have going for us. And so I don't think we don't necessarily take it for granted. I don't want to come across like that. It's been, it has been a fast couple of years and somewhat chaotic, but I think there was, it was planned to, it just, once things start going fast, like you either respond and, and, keep trying to grow or like, do you just sit on your hands and say no? Like, so we've just kept going with it and kept uh, adapting and finding people that can have different skill sets than us to come in and work here. And that's been huge to this whole thing. Yeah. What about from a partnership standpoint, would y'all do what y'all are doing now 
if it was just y'all two, or does it sometimes when you had a partnership in the mix, does that push you to move at a faster pace or a slower pace than what you would want to do naturally? Uh, I don't, I don't know that that necessarily affects it. And and maybe that's just because we're in a, I think a really good situation with partners that, you know, they want to trust our vision for it. And if, if things weren't working well, that might not be the case, but you know, it's, it is interesting to see. I mean, there's people that in certain parts of business are, you know, a lot smarter than the two of us, but they're willing to listen to us and say, Hey, look, this is how it works in the beer industry. And here's why we think this thing is the right move to make. And, you know, that's, that's kind of how it works for us. I think the two of us, we keep each other accountable in our own ways. You asked a question earlier kind of around that. And I think the essence of the question is like, has it gotten to your heads or something like that a little bit? And we were talking about how we make fun of each other, but I think that's our own way of keeping each other accountable. David makes fun of me, you know, if I have like a nice pair of pants on or something like that. But I think that that helps us. We keep each other accountable. And I think we certainly aren't always aligned, but you know, when we get to where we'll go have our own little conversations and when we can like get together, like I think it can push Wiseacre in really amazing directions. I feel more motivated to keep growing because of my brother, because of my family, then, you know, then our, our partners aren't like breathing down our necks or something like that, looking for something, you know, next week. And I'm super thankful for that. But in general, my motivations have more to do with family and our, and our staff and, you know, wanting to be a better business than, you know, partners that are like demanding returns or something. Yeah. What do y'all have in mind? What are y'all planning for? I mean, we talked about it briefly earlier. Y'all built this really nice facility in downtown Memphis. Y'all have talked about wanting more people to come in and visit it and from a tourism standpoint, but you've talked about North Carolina, South Carolina, talked about Kentucky, you've talked about Colorado, talked about the difference in production between Broad and the downtown brewery. Y'all don't seem people that just operate out of gut instinct in a complete unknown plan of the future. Y'all seem very strategic in certain ways. So I'm curious to hear y'all kind of share what you have in mind or what you're shooting for in the future. I personally, I would say we want to push this because I think I want to see things, you know, reach their fullest potential. And you know, I have three kids. I want them to become the best people they can be and excel at things. And, you know, but I want it to happen in natural ways. Like I'm not going to force my kids to play sports or something or because if they don't want to, like it's got to be natural. So I think we both want Wiseacre to grow, but we want it to be in, in natural ways. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go try to shove our beer down the throat of Iowa or something like that, you know, but it's gotta, there's gotta be like <laughs> there's down the throat of Iowa, natural you know, progression to it. And sometimes it is going to be a whole lot of, at the same time. And, but we're, we're going to definitely make the most of opportunities we have. And yeah, I think grow for the reasons I said for, us, our families, our staff for the city of Memphis. And yeah. yeah, I think Memphis, there's, it's fun to be downtown. I think post COVID there's good developments going on. It's cool to think about as just a citizen, what downtown Memphis will look like. So that that's exciting to me too. I mean, is it fair to say that the whole point in really doing this facility downtown and obviously what's coming now, I mean, y'all are just continuing to ramp up for getting Wiseacre into every state in the country that, is a good deal for y'all and well, where you're not having to shove it down Iowa's throat, but everybody else where it's a win-win. I mean, is that kind of the plan? So we knew that we needed more space than what we had on broad. 
we knew that we needed more technology than we had on broad. And maybe most importantly, we knew that our identity is Memphis and that we wanted to make sure that we stayed a, you know, visually and topographically important place. So we put it in the middle of downtown Memphis. Um, and, you know, we, we probably could have opened up the new brewery a lot sooner uh, with a lot less money and resources if we had done it somewhere else. But, you know, I, I think Kellen and I both had a strong desire to stay really connected to the city. And it, it was hard for us to imagine putting it somewhere that wasn't the, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to make sure it was in the core of Memphis somewhere. We're really glad uh, to be where we are. We have a completely different locale. I mean, the, the tap room, which, you know, is a part of our brewery, has a very different crowd down here than what they have on Broad. And the, the aesthetic is completely different. You know, Broad's kind of old and dark and there's not, you know, it's not a lot of windows. Well, there's, there are a lot of windows. There's not a lot of natural light. It's very cozy, you know. This is very well lit, very open, a lot more modern looking. And we, we knew we wanted to do that too, you know, to have very different looking facilities. Man, that's awesome. Last question I got, can you give any either advice or lessons learned about doing what you're doing, putting in 20 hour days early on? I don't know what you're putting on now. Also being married and having young kids. And Kellen, you talked about your three kids and kind of what you want them to see or think one day, but how to manage all that, how to keep having fun. I know that might fluctuate, but if you throw all that, being a chef or a brewmaster, how, how to make sense of it and how to kind of share maybe what you've learned that is best or what works and what you kind of want to cling to. Well, we sort of said it earlier, but I, I feel like approaching things with a sense of humor is of the utmost importance. Like just at some point today, the inside of our heat exchanger froze water and blew up the inside of it and you know, it, I mean, it's just a complete freak accident. But honestly, there's more days where things go wrong than days when things go perfectly. And I mean, I think that's just kind of, that's the world of manufacturing and that's the world of, of brewing professionally. And I think success has a lot more to do with how you react to the problems than whether or not you have the problems. Because everybody has the problems. And if you spend too much time worrying about the fact that you're going to have them or I, the most important thing you can do is, is, have a good plan, you know, for what to do when it, when it does happen. And from an, an attitude perspective, you just, you cannot get crushed by the fact that things keep going wrong. You got to get back on the horse and hopefully you can laugh about how the horse has stupid legs. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I just maybe reiterate that, you know, using San Pellegrino <laughs> here has been one of the most important decisions we've ever made. <laughs> also, our beer has bubbles before we put bubbles. It's got it's a little fizzy before we even make the beer. <laughs> you know, th this a form of this question gets asked a lot, and like I feel like the first couple of years, I always was just like, I don't, I don't have any advice. But I think, you know, the advice is just the stuff that we talked about. Like if you're gonna go out and and not just that you have to, you have to start your own business because there's a lot of ways to be successful. And I think being successful probably has more to do with, you know, happiness and anything else, but you know, it's the, the hard work and preparation because I don't, I don't think either of us consider ourselves like, like a master of business, but I think we really went and got, you know, good experience and we worked 
hard. We've got, you know, Davins uh, went in for his first job as an assistant brewer and the guy tore up his resume and threw it away. And Davin just like worked for a couple of months and he was like, Hey, I, uh, I haven't gotten paid yet. Am I like, did I get the job? Like two months ago. And the guy was like, Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. We need to get you on payroll. But you know, you gotta be willing to do that stuff. And it's fun to think about those things now, but I think the hard work and preparation, at least for us is the best lesson, you know, the things that we learned along the way. And if you read outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book, yeah. there's 10,000 hour rule. He talks about the Beatles and, yeah. you know, Tom Berg, they were playing in clubs six nights a week. And George Harrison was like 16 and got deported, but they got their 10,000 hours as musicians. So when the Beatles became the Beatles, they had, they had been at it. It wasn't like a overnight stroke of luck thing. And we both kind of had our Hamburgs to get our 10,000 10, hours before we opened up. And I think it, you know, made all the difference. Yeah. Y'all talked about your dad just kind of being a just straight shooter and he's going to say what he thinks. He taught y'all that, you know, as we're ending, is there any connections to where y'all are at and what you're talking about, but how you learned that from either your dad or your mom and your talked about your mom, I think being from New Jersey. Yeah. I think they're special. I think they're both really smart. You know, they very much wanted both our respect and to be, our friends and they didn't want that to get out of balance one way or the other. They didn't want to just be like parent dictators and didn't want to be like the cool parents. that just, you know, tried to be our friends all the time. But I think we learned a lot just by watching them and how they handled things. They had ups and downs to their careers. They invited us to be a part of challenging situations and problems and taught us to think critically. They showed us, you know, how to, forgive each other because they forgave each other when things didn't go perfect. And uh, I feel like in some ways, you know, our dad had a good career. It wasn't like he didn't do poorly or something, but he he was steering us towards like how to be independent pretty early on because he had kind of ups and downs of climbing corporate ladders and disappointments, stuff like that. So I think he, he was kind of steering us in this, in this direction in, in his own way too. You know, I think my mom's, zaniness she's the the person that's always wanted to laugh uh, kind of when it's inappropriate and I feel like most of the time when when I'm making light of situations that maybe Kellen thinks I shouldn't be making light of I feel like it's kind of it's from that side of the family which I I think it's again I think it's very cathartic but they both have always been able to to laugh even when things are tough I think that kind of plays a big part in making us the company that we are man this has been great Thank y'all so much. It's been fun being with y'all and thank y'all for carving out this time on Friday afternoon and uh, can't wait to get this out. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. Also, please subscribe to the show, follow me on social and join me on this curiosity-fueled journey so that you can feel that same sense of purpose and see the opportunities that are right for you. All of this at drivenbypodcast.com. See you next time on the Driven By Podcast.